0: You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemaineradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program.
1: Now when I'm at like an event and there's no option for like where to throw my napkin other than the trash, it's like holding it above the trash can for the few fateful
2: seconds and uh, uh, okay I guess I have to let it go. doesn't feel right. Well nobody wants to be a landfill, a a neighbor to a landfill Um, and you know landfills um, can grow in size quite rapidly.
3: This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio show number 247, Treasuring Our Trash airing for the first time on Sunday, June 12, 2016. Gone are the days when we can toss our unwanted items in a landfill or burn them in the backyard. We have come to realize that we live on a planet that has finite space, a space that we want to keep clean for our children and the generations beyond theirs. Today we seek to look at trash as a resource rather than refuse, with our guest Tyler Frank, founder of the curbside composting program Garbage to Garden, and Kevin Roche, CEO of EcoMaine. Thank you for joining us.
0: Love, Main Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information.
3: People who have been listening to the radio show for a while know that I'm a big fan of compost. I, I can't deny it. I think that composting is a beautiful thing. And the individual I'm going to talk with next also believes that compost is a beautiful thing. I, I, I hope, I think. This is Tyler Frank who grew up backyard composting in North Yarmouth, Maine. After graduating from Chevers in Portland, he attended Boston College majoring in economics. After returning to Portland, Frank explored a number of career avenues, starting a web company with a friend, working for a car dealership, and running for the Maine House of Representatives. Shortly thereafter, Garbage to Garden took root, Maine's first curbside composting program and the most successful program like it in the United States. Congratulations!
1: Thank you very much.
3: This is, this is good stuff. I, I love that you um, have done so many different things and they've brought you back to composting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of just a lifelong entrepreneur, which I mean in the broadest sense of the word. i just have a lot of different interests. I like to create things, and and creating an organization like Garbage to Garden has been definitely the most difficult and most rewarding so far.
3: Tell me about the whole, like, economics major, I think I'll work on compost. Like, it seems like as an (laughs) entrepreneur there might be other things that... Well, like web design or some of these other things that you've done.
1: Well, I mean, economics is just something that I'm personally interested in, economics and history. Um, You know, when it comes to composting, um, it just seemed to me that it was, uh, you know, something that was needed and therefore, you know, an opportunity. Um, I had started a web development company with my best friend James, who I grew up with um, in like 2007, I want to say. and. That was just because he had the skills. To, he was a developer and a designer, and I, um, you know, I thought I could sell ice to an Eskimo. So together, our you know our powers, we could we could do that and be self-employed. And um, and that was kind of we learned a lot because we grew really quickly, and then um, you know we we grew too quickly, and then we couldn't sustain the uh, the revenue, and kind of blew up the company. Uh, we were young and learned a lot of lessons. <laughs> But, um, you know, I brought some of that to Garbage to Garden and bootstrapping something from nothing was very much like don't spend money until you've earned it. You know, you just had... It was just starting off with a few hundred dollars and buying 12 buckets and then, you know, getting a few more sign-ups at a farmer's market and going out and buying some more buckets and just kind of turning it over and do, working for free. Um, but, I mean, there's... You know, the the reason that I got into doing that at the time that I did is uh, I had just left a very full-time career at Lee Toyota, moved to Portland because I had been living in North Yarmouth, and when I moved to Portland, uh, I found myself in a second floor apartment that shared a tiny yard and there was no, no space to compost at all. So for the first time in my life, something that had just been everyday and, and normal uh, was impossible. And, you know, we're buying these blue bags and throwing food in them and it just didn't feel right. And um, it was actually my roommate's comment that if, you know, we could just put it at the curb like recycling, it'd be easy to compost that got my gears turning. And, uh, you know, having been acquainted with the Portland community just seemed like something that, you know, wasn't offered and and that a lot of people might appreciate. So I didn't really know if I could do it and, you know, do it and financially make it make sense, but um, just went after it and it's worked out.
3: I've had the same experience that you're describing. Um, it there's something, if you've been composting, if you've been, if you have a pile, if you have a rotator, you know, to put it in a bag that's going to then go to a landfill and then not biodegrade, or if so, like, not for Millions of years that there's something wrong that just seems wrong, not like a sin, but it just seems it just doesn't it just it doesn't work
1: yeah now when I'm at like an event and there's no option for like where to throw my napkin other than trash it's like holding it above the trash can for the few fateful seconds and then like oh, uh, okay, I guess I have to let it go it doesn't feel right, but um, you know it was it was really something that most people in an urban area like Portland had no choice but to do uh, so yeah, I, one thing that was interesting was, you know, I had the philosophy of like fail fast, fail cheap. If it wasn't gonna work, I didn't want to put all kinds of time and money into trying to make it work. So, um, I launched Garbage to Garden six weeks after having the idea with no preparation at all, like, n- you know, no plan of how to pick up buckets or where to compost them or how this was gonna work at all. Just sort of made a website, made it conceived of a service, picked a number, a price out of thin air, and that I thought people would maybe pay, that would, like, justify, you know, the service. And, uh, it, uh, it just was a lot of luck, actually, that it that it worked out. But, um, we were bringing food waste to my mom's backyard in North Yarmouth for, like, six weeks, probably, maybe two months, until my mom was like, Tyler, no more. This is, this is getting out of hand. <laughs> and, uh... Well, on that that note, actually, the the day that, uh, I at one point had 18 55-gallon drums full sealed in her driveway, and she's like, Tyler, I said no more of this. And I'm like, Mom, I'm not going to empty them. I I know. I I just need a place to put these. Uh, The code enforcement officer's all over me on Vesper Street in Portland, and uh, I'm going to figure something out soon. I'm on it. And it was uh, this one particular uh, Wednesday morning. Wednesday's our big day. and. At this time in September 2012, we already required a trailer uh, to collect all the material from the the households that day, and we needed barrels to fill, and they were all full already in North Yarmouth, and I had to, I had just found Benson Farm in Gorham, and so that morning I was able to go get barrels, bring them to the farm, empty them out, and then go do a collection route, and uh, just like scraped by there, Um, so thanks to my mom's kindness and generosity. And uh, actually, her, that area of her yard is very lush now. I had a pretty good-sized pile of food scraps, and now it's uh, you know all overgrown.
3: <laughs> I, I do love the story. I'm just thinking if one of my kids did this to me, I'd be like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. <laughs> do I really need to have an entire driveway full of barrels or a, an enormous <laughs> pile of somebody else's food scraps in my backyard? Yeah. Like, that's a lot of, uh, I guess, patience and support of you.
1: Yeah, I'm really lucky that my mom is... Been supportive of just about everything. Although I think at that point she didn't think it was going to work out. She thought she was just going to end up with a huge pile of food waste and be holding the bag, so to speak. But, um, uh, but yeah, we got uh, you know 174 households in our first month that signed up. So uh, it was it was scrambling for sure. But after partnering with farms and finding a little commercial space we could operate out of, we were kind of you know w- at least the sort of the, the death threats were gone. Like we were off the ground a little bit. And then it was just a lot of work to just, you know, build it up and add trucks and keep them on the road. And, um, yeah, it was, I actually lived in a tent the following summer at the shop um, just to make ends meet. yeah
3: Well, you know, this is something that I don't think a lot of people think think about we in this strangely in this day and age a lot of us think like startup venture capital you get a lot of money you throw it at something and then you become successful because you get that kind of financial support but you're talking about get a little money invest you know get a little bit more money invest some more like you're talking about like very steady but mindful growth
1: yeah exactly I mean you might call it bootstrapping but the um, there's uh, I think a lot to be said for that I mean certainly everybody These days, all you hear about is the idea of being an entrepreneur is just what you said. You know, get a business plan, get somebody to give you a bunch of money, and then your idea comes to fruition. But there are other ways to do it, and and one doesn't exclude the other. Like we're looking at, you know, we're probably going to be raising money in the future as we go to expand and scale into other states. But, um, you know, this was my, my baby, I suppose. And to be able to create it without that outside venture capital help has, you know, allowed a lot of, uh, allowed us to stay true to our mission, um, you know, to really be able to sh- to build an organization in the image that we wanted, or I wanted, without, um, you know, an outsized influence from somebody who's writing the checks. So uh, I think that that's uh, been important, at least in this, in this endeavor.
3: So tell me about the, the logistics. I know I was telling you where I live, I see the little buckets by mm-hmm. the roadside, and I'll know it's Garbage to Garden Day. And um, so I live out on Little John Island, but you, you service a pretty broad area.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we service um, uh, like one in six Portland households, and then also we service uh, a good number in South Portland, in Westbrook, Falmouth, Cumberland, Yarmouth, as you say and even Brunswick. Uh, And then we do commercial service, which is, you know, done differently, but the same idea for uh, businesses and schools and bakeries and restaurants from uh, Old Orchard Beach to uh, Freeport to Standish. We do colleges. Um, So, you know, the residential program has definitely been our you know, our big claim to fame. And I think we've been so successful because of the clean buckets, making it so easy. It's on your trash day. You know, it, it's make it rewarding. So you get the finished compost back. So hopefully that encourages more local food production. Um, and also the accessibility piece of just making, you know, it's free if you volunteer with us. So there's really no reason not to do it if if you care about where your waste goes and you need a way to compost. So, um, yeah, I mean, the logistics are, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot to it I'd, and I've I went from you know just sort of uh, having an idea to now knowing quite a bit about running a trucking operation which you know is a good skill to have It's a lot of things you could apply that to but um, yeah so this, I could take logistics in a lot of directions
3: well yeah so okay <coughs> there's the, I, I don't know when I was interviewing the guy from EcoMaine who talks about solid waste yeah, and he doesn't mean solid waste <coughs> like human waste he means like stuff that goes to possibly landfills, possibly recycling, that sort of thing. But he talked about the ick factor of composting. He's mm. a big fan of composting, but there is the ick factor. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, so someone's thinking about joining our program. They're like, well, is it going to smell? You know, like I'm going to have this bucket full of all this food scraps. It's degrading in my house. It's like, well, yeah, but you're going to have that in your trash. You already, in fact, have that in your trash bag. So, you know, in one sense, being able to, take all that smelly stuff out of your trash and put it in something else that's sealed that gets picked up every week, allows you to uh, maybe keep your trash around and, you know, not put that bag out every week and stuff it full. Of for, you know, we have some people who can go six weeks with one trash bag. Um, so in that sense, you're making it cleaner. But it's the perception that it's gross. So And it would be if, if we didn't wash the buckets, for example, and we just dumped that thing out and you had a, this, you know, this bucket with grime smeared all over it then, uh, you know, that might turn you off to it a bit. So, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of work, but I think that that uh, it has allowed us to make a very effective um, program for everybody. The, uh, you know, the, the compost that you get back is certainly not, not gross, It's has a little earthy smell, but um, yeah, the home composting even, to do it right, you know, you've got to get in there, you've got to turn your pile around, you've got to flip it over. Um, you know, there's other challenges that maybe aren't the ick factor, like just getting out in the snow to dump it somewhere, um, or just the space or the time. So um, there's a lot of reasons why it's tough for people to do it on their own, and the, the ick factor is a major one.
3: Well, I, I think there's also, um, sometimes there's convincing the other people in the household that they want to be a part of this. I, I know that the uh, the my children, who for many years would I made them do the compost run because my parents made me do the compost run. You know, there's the compost thing. You go put the compost in the compost pile, right? And um, they were reluctant because, (laughs) you know, it's not necessarily a fun job in January when you actually have to shovel uh, way out to the compost pile. And so the the convincing of people sometimes can be tricky.
1: A lot of people don't like change, you know, as I think... uh, you know, you need at least one member in the household who's like really dedicated to the change. It's like, honey, no, we're doing it this way. You're just going to have to deal with it. The, that, that's sort of what, how change happens in the real world. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned, you know, seeing a bucket on the street and then seeing another one. Then, you know, a couple months later, another one. I think that that probably goes a long way to legitimize a new way of doing things. Um, it's, you know, it's you'd think that, you know, we've been doing this four years that maybe... Everybody that wanted to do it joined in the first year, and the truth is, we've uh, our last year we've grown the fastest rate so far. So I think you can only attribute that to people, um, you know, continuously kind of coming around to accepting a new way of doing things.
3: You also make it very easy.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is the the way that you <laughs> are doing this is honestly. I, I don't think that it could be easier. People just put the stuff in the bucket bucket goes out to the curb I mean you already have to do it with your trash so like and it's not even that expensive because I've looked into this and it's like it's almost worth you know not having my own compost pile of course then I'd miss the morning trips out there so I probably won't ever do garbage to garden but it's only because (laughs) of my own like spiritual need I guess to commune with the compost but yeah, but this is just so it seems very at least from a consumer standpoint it seems seamless
1: yeah that was my intention from the beginning was like how can we make this as simple as convenient as possible I mean I don't know if someone has any idea then I'm always looking for that information but you know it's like you put it out there and it just magically turns into a fresh clean bucket and bag of finished products it takes a year to turn that you know food scraps into good compost but you know you set it out a couple hours later bam <laughs> everything's you know magically as it should be so um and, you know, we also find ourselves answering a lot of questions, not just about what can compost and what can go in the bucket and how we can break down meat and how things that aren't organically grown can make compost that's good for growing organic food. And, you know, we answer questions about how to use this finished product, how you know, can, you know how to cut it with topsoil, like how to use it for planting. And we do a lot of like, compost deliveries. We're installing raised beds for people this year. So we've, uh, you know, really kind of branched out into... Um, educating people in a lot of ways and uh, kind of participating at all levels of the of the loop of the life of food scraps
3: food scraps have become a big issue
1: yeah they are I mean, 40% of what we throw away is uh, biodegradable and nationally 3% of that material is composted so 97% nationally is actually going to a landfill Um, there's a there's a few issues with that Uh, the, you know, the, I like to think of composting as the most important issue of sustainability because it's got three pillars to it. One is obviously waste reduction. 40% of what we throw away is like the largest single component of municipal garbage. Um, <clears throat> but also when food scraps break down in a landfill there's no oxygen uh, and in that environment they release the most methane and carbon dioxide. And methane is 20 to 30 times stronger than CO2 as a greenhouse gas, so it all adds up that that food waste in landfills is one of the largest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. So if you're cutting that back, you're reducing that in a major way. And then the third pillar is, you know, our whole food system is somewhat unsustainable. It's based on, you know, importing a lot of uh, chemical fertilizers. You know, you just sowing the ground with you know liquid like nitrogen and NPK we know exactly I don't know exactly what they do but I know that they're not putting the actual organic material back in the soil they're just adding the liquid fertilizers and over the time you know you're pulling the the organic matter out and that's what holds all the water in the soil so that's why soils get harder and drier and require more fertilizing to be able to produce the same amount of food <clears throat> so it's just sort of a long term path to being able to produce less food and having a less productive soil if we don't return those nutrients. I mean there is a carbon cycle and it you know it, it needs to be a cycle in order for it to work for thousands of years. So I was kinda gonna on one there about the uh, importance of it but um, um, you know I, I just think that it's uh, it is the most important issue of sustainability in our time yeah.
3: And they're doing this at an international level as well. They're thinking about food waste at, on an international level.
1: Yeah, I, um, I mean, I get kind of focused in on the, you know, on what we're doing here on the ground, but you hear about it from all, all directions. Um, there's, you know, I, there's a documentary out there, just eat it, that I just saw recently. Um, uh, you know, it's about people that survived growing all around the country. I think it was some amount of time, like a month or several months that they ate nothing but uh, food from dumpsters that was being thrown away that was totally good. And it was trying to educate you that sell-by dates are not when food goes bad. You know, that's just something that is on there that doesn't necessarily mean that food's bad. You've got to use your senses to determine if something's good to eat or not. And, um, you know, I think something like one-third of the food that's produced on the planet goes to waste before it ever is, like, potentially consumed by someone so there's more to the issue than just what do we do with food that's wasted but how can we cut back on the waste of food you know have a little bin in your fridge that is a use eat me first bin you know and put things there that are going to go bad so um, I think that you know having people once people start separating their food scraps and are putting them in a different bin you see how much you do waste you know that's that's money um, if you can find a, you know people start to find ways to reduce the amount they're throwing away and Find ways to actually eat it before it gets to that point. So I hope that we're helping to encourage that change. And uh, but yeah, internationally, I think I the, it's like the U.N.'s theme for the year was uh, uh, food food waste reduction. Um, I don't know much about their initiative to tell you the truth, but um, I do know that you know I mentioned that three percent of the food scraps nationwide are composted. In Maine, I'm proud to say that's extremely different. In Portland, it's about 25% uh, thanks to us, and now even other companies that have come in to help get that stuff out of the waste stream.
3: And you work with local farms. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there like a big, I'm just kind of curious, so is is there like a giant compost pile somewhere that you're, (laughs) you're constantly turning and moving and...
1: There's a few of them uh, there's we our first farm we worked with is Benson Farm in Gorham, and that's still where a lot of material goes and that's a huge compost pile i mean they they have windrows, which is just another fancy word for a long pile that are probably fifteen feet tall and you know, fifteen feet wide and two hundred feet long and you know there's just dozens of them and they get turned periodically. nature does all the hard work. All you really do is monitor piles, make sure you get the right balance of carbon and nitrogen material and turn it when, like, the temperature starts to drop. It might mean that it's not getting enough air. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an enormous pile, and that's actually the reason we can accept meat and dairy and bones and paper towels, stuff you can't really do in your backyard, just because the, when it gets that big, the bacteria uh, that that live in that pile heat it up to higher temperatures, and, and then new bacteria, thermophilic bacteria, will come in and can break down more complex proteins. Um, actually when there I was at the farm once uh recently, well I guess it might have been a little while ago, but there was a whale that had been found on the beach um I want to say it was maybe a beluga whale, but they put that whale in a compost pile, give it a month or two, go back and open it up when the flesh is degraded, but not the bones, and can exhume the bones for um for students so that's that was pretty cool but there's also uh you know uh the we are diverting fifty tons per week now of food scraps, and so there's you know we need more than one outlet we're proud to support local farms but also we work with uh, an anaerobic digester up in Exeter Maine that makes electricity from food scraps so uh, a good you know several tons every day go up there and <clears throat> and that's pretty pretty neat because you know it's far away but but they are making energy from it and they're still getting a, a fertilizer product out of it and the the energy is produced by burning the methane but you can also condense that and make uh, a renewable biogas that is ex- basically the same thing as natural gas. And so, one day we hope to be able to power all of our, uh, all of our, any gasoline vehicle you can convert to run on natural gas. So we can run our fleet on biogas one day, and uh, basically have zero footprint in terms of fuel that we're using. So the future is pretty cool, I think, in this industry.
3: How many households do you currently have?
1: Uh, We've got uh, we've broken five thousand, so uh, it's it's quite a few. And then we have got you know uh, one to one hundred and fifty probably commercial locations that we compost with.
3: What's your what's your goal? What would you like to see happen?
1: Well, I I used to I started out I had a goal of five thousand households. Just was an arbitrary like that would be a lot kind of number, Um, but the the goal is to get you know our is the goal is to get all the food scraps out of the landfill. And, where you know, how far do we extend that? It's certainly I consider Southern Maine uh, as our target area right now, but we think we have a program that's successful enough that we can replicate that in other urban areas. We're aiming to do that very soon, actually, in Massachusetts. And Vermont has, uh, uh, Vermont and Mass and Connecticut and soon Maine all have um, organic waste bands, landfill bands. So they're phased in, and they start with just uh, large generators that make one ton or more per week. Um, and they say that you have to send it to a composting facility or an anaerobic digester. <clears throat> and that's going to step down closer and closer to the household level. And so it's sort of making the market in those areas. And a lot of towns and businesses are really struggling to figure out how they're going to comply with this. And um, they really, they need us down there. So we're going to be trying to replicate our model. Um, I mentioned James, who I started the web development company with, I grew up with. He's on our team now and he's built a proprietary software that manages our whole operation so um, soon drivers will be able to actually just use tablets in the trucks to complete the route and everything's just managed all live and very seamless and it will also enable us to communicate with trucks in other states so that we can start these satellite operations and still have our home office here in, in Portland. Um, so that's, that's where we're trying to go with it.
3: Who ever thought that garbage <laughs> could be so glamorous? Yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff, actually. Um, how do people find out about Garbage to Garden?
1: How do they find out about it? Well, there's a lot of information on our website, garbage dot gardenorg And, um... You know, we are at 57 Industrial Way in Portland. It's a pretty cool area. They call it uh, Industry Ale Way because that's where all the breweries are at Gallagash, Bissell Brothers Foundation. So people can come by for a tour and visit with us and uh, stop and have a beer somewhere and right afterwards if they like.
3: Well, I'm really interested in what happens in your in the future, in the future of Garbage to Garden. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by all of this. It's does my heart good knowing all these years that I had to fight with people to talk about the importance of composting, even people in my own household. Like, composting is so important, but it makes me feel happy that I'm now, along with 5,000 other households that are at least participating in your program, and I'm sure countless other people who are doing their own composting. I'm so glad it's become a thing. I know that our audio producer, Spencer, he's a big fan of composting. We're all... We're all on your side, Tyler. <laughs> um, but I give you a lot of credit for hanging in there and finding something that really works and making it like a really practical solution.
1: Yeah. And we, you know, I mentioned we're branching into other areas. Like we do, uh, this summer, we're doing all kinds of events. Um, we Events are very wasteful. And that's not just food, but all kinds of waste. So we um, partner with event planners to provide a zero-waste event service and try to uh, incentivize the food trucks and things coming in to use recyclable and compostable materials and we make uh... you know compost and recycle stations available all over and um... just to make it as close to a zero waste event as possible with volunteers and such so we're gonna you're gonna see us at all these concerts and fourth of july in different places and um... you know as much as possible we want to be uh... you know we want to connect with the communities that we're in um, to, to help foster that social change
3: We've been speaking with Tyler Frank, who is the, um, one of the originators of Garbage to Garden. He's the founder. Um, I'm excited to hear about what's going on, and I probably should be less excited about composting because it doesn't seem that exciting, <laughs> but, but I am, and I, I love what you're doing, and I'm really appreciative that you came in and you talked to us about this today.
1: Yeah, well, I'm really glad to be here, and I hope to be back sometime.
3: Absolutely.
0: Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Booms Fish House and Oyster Room. Maine's seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists, and we also host a series of monthly solo shows in our newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Eric Hopkins, Matthew Russ, Jane Damon, William Crosby, and Ruth Hamill, to name a few. Please visit our website for complete show details at artcollectormaine.com.
3: Today, it's my great pleasure to speak with Kevin Roach, who is the Chief Executive Officer of EcoMaine. As a result of a nationwide search, Kevin joined EcoMaine in 2004. He has worked in the field of solid waste management since 1988, and his experience includes positions as the Director of Solid Waste for Broome County, New York, Materials Recovery Administrator for the City of Glendale, Arizona, manager for Metro Waste in Rochester, New York, owner of MRF Incorporated, a recycling facility in Rochester, New York, and the solid waste coordinator for both Monroe County and the city of Rochester, New York. Kevin is a 1989 graduate of the University of Buffalo, where he received a Bachelor of Science degree in geography and urban planning. He also holds an associate degree in business administration. Thanks for coming in today.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: You have a lot of really impressive credentials behind you. You've been in a lot of different places doing this work for a while.
2: Sure have, and uh, those experiences uh, all across the country um, have worked well um, in, in developing good policy in solid waste management and recycling.
3: It's not a glamorous position, the whole like, the whole solid waste thing. Just the name, solid waste. It doesn't seem like it's glamorous, but it's very important.
2: Uh, it, it isn't glamorous, and, and when I graduated from the University of Buffalo, you know, my my passion at that time was uh, computerized mapping. We know it now today as Google, but back then in the 80s, we didn't have Google. It wasn't mainstream, but I loved maps. And I struggled with entering the career of, of solid waste when I really went to school for mapping
3: so how did that happen then
2: well the first I did an internship with the city of Rochester and my first project was to um, assist the city in putting garbage routes onto maps and at that time they were still doing it by hand and we wanted to introduce this computerized mapping really Google Google Earth (laughs) and so that was the start of it and so I did a pre I worked on a project for the city kind of got uh, in deep into solid waste management. At the same time, they wanted to uh, develop a recycling program and it caught on and uh, I never left it.
3: You also have this um, geography interest. How does that play into all of this? Is this part of the map thing?
2: It really is. I mean, I've always been intrigued with maps and, um, and of course, uh, you know, now that we have Google Earth, you know, I, I spend a lot of time on that. Um, but solid waste management, um, you know, has a, a very close connection um, to uh, the area of, of mapping.
3: So when you say solid waste management... What types of solids are you talking about?
2: So uh, my area is, 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 is trash, and um, I tell my five-year-old son, you know that uh, you know I'm I'm a garbage man, and um, he sometimes looks at me funny, um, but uh, it's managing um, what we throw away in our society, and uh, whether we recycle it, whether we digest it, compost it, um, all of those things is is something that uh, we're very interested in.
3: So I can't even tell you, it's like my heart be still. I love talking about this because I think what you're talking about is really so important. We, we are creating things that we're putting out into the environment that need to go somewhere. And for a long time, we were burning trash or we were putting the trash in enormous landfills. And that just wasn't sustainable. So now you're actually working on making sure that the waste stream is diverted into the appropriate places. And this is great.
2: That's exactly right. Um, the placement, as you call the placement of waste, it, it's so important um, as, a, as a civic duty to make sure that uh, the different types of waste end up in the right place. And really that's uh, what my job is all about, is to ensure that happens. Um, we make mistakes. Um, we don't always get it to the right place, um, but with good community support, um, we're headed in the right direction.
3: Ecomaine was called RWS previously. Why was that an important change to make?
2: It was an important change because um, regional waste systems um, was really focused on one technology to deal with waste. And um, we felt, uh, along with the board of directors, um, of which there were 29 members of of the board, um, we felt that uh, we really need to focus on an integrated approach um, to dealing with solid waste with uh, many answers, rather than just having one answer on how to deal with uh, uh, with solid waste. So there's really no silver bullet in this industry. It's really making sure that the particular uh, parts or, or segments of the waste stream ends up in the right place. And so that's how we came up with uh, EcoMaine um, as a, a more... Um, earth-friendly name um, that really focused on an integrated approach to solid waste management and ensuring that waste gets to its right place.
3: Having lived in Maine most of my life and a good chunk of it in Yarmouth, I've, I've been around for the evolution where first everything went in the trash and then you could recycle, but you needed to bring your things somewhere. Um, and my parents always had a compost pile, so at least we had that. But now you can recycle and you don't have to separate things out. There's actually single sort where you can have your trash, either you can bring it somewhere in a single sort, or you can have it by the side of the road, you can have trash and you can have recycling in one. It's really great because part of this is the ease of use.
2: That's right. Um, When we first started our recycling programs, um, you know, 25 years ago, a lot of uh, programs, and and recycling's been around a lot longer than that, of course, but when it became more mainstream and available to the general public, we started out with newspapers. Um, Back 25 years ago, everybody was still subscribing to a newspaper, Um, and although there's not many newspapers left uh, out on the curbside anymore, um, there's still other types of papers, like catalogs and magazines and, and... uh, mail and, and things like that. Um, and so the, they started these programs with just, you know, simple newspapers, and then they added clear glass and brown glass and green glass and tin cans and aluminum cans. And so these collection vehicles turned into trains, uh, having to sort and separate everything at the curb. So um, the job of the collector, um, they were spending, you know, 50, 60 seconds, you know, sometimes a couple of minutes in front of each house with the truck running. And so we needed another way to do this as we were adding more and more materials to our recycling programs. And so it was more efficient to do the separation at, at a facility, such as a, a recovery facility such as the one that EcoMaine owns and operates. It also allowed for ease of participation. So if you, just, if you don't have a garage or you don't have a basement or you live in a small apartment, you might not have the room for all these different containers for all these different commodities. And so if you can put them all into one bin, um, that was the approach to go. So that's how single sort uh, really came to be. And And it really came, there was a wave across the country. It happened very quickly um, because collection became so much more efficient and you could collect from more households um, in in fewer hours.
3: I remember separating everything out and I remember one of the problems was always that my children would kind of question the amount of time that i would take you know we had all these different bins and i was always out in the garage and i was always kind of maneuvering things around and so it became almost a barrier not to me i was fine with it but it became a barrier when i would ask my own children to go out and recycle things in the barn because they just it just didn't seem that important. Do you think that making it easier is causing people to recycle more now?
2: Um yeah, studies have shown that that's exactly the case. Um a lot of people came to me and they they came and they said why are you changing this program? I love sorting my stuff. Um, but the program really we were focused on the people who weren't participating. So we knew that um, you know if if you were concerned about uh, what to do with your trash, we knew that you were going to participate in any program that was put in front of you our market was the non-participant. How do we get to that next person who may not be participating in the recycling program and we did need to make it easier.
3: So what types of numbers are you seeing?
2: Well, in our case, um, just in the last 10 years, we've more than uh, doubled the amount of recycled material that comes into our facility. And one of the reasons for that is, is because we've made it easier for the public to participate in our recycling programs, but we've also um, made the collection more efficient. A lot of communities uh, before, when you had to sort and separate all the materials at the curb, couldn't afford curbside collection. And now that it's basically one bin, a dump, and then you go on to the next collection stop, um, it's become more efficient so that uh, more and more communities can avoid, uh, can afford uh, curbside collection of recyclable materials.
3: I know that in our town, it's, it, what used to be called the dump is now called the transfer station. So even changing that name so that people understand that things don't just go to some magical smokestack in the sky or they don't get buried underneath a big heap, but they're actually probably moving somewhere after that. I think that really was very useful.
2: It was, although I bet you a lot of people call it the dump. Still, call it the dump. <laughs> That's <to> probably true. <laughs> going to the dump, but th- that is that is very uh, very true. Is is most of the local small town dumps did close. Um, because they weren't secure, uh, meaning that they had enviro- they were they had environmental impacts to the surrounding neighbors and the surrounding community. Um, secure landfills today uh, are engineered so that they don't have the impact um, on the surrounding community um, through a secure landfill. Um, basically, a, a liner system a liner system protects that um, from from happening. Um, but even so, even with a secure landfill, we still don't want to lit- fill our landfills um, up with waste that's not needed to go there. And that is why reduce, reuse, recycling is so important, composting and digestion, and even waste to energy. Um, you mentioned burning trash. Years ago, they just burned trash without any energy recovery. Today we burn trash with energy recovery and pollution control. So it's a much more controlled environment than it, that it used to be, and we get a 90% reduction in the waste volume before we landfill it so our landfills will last ninety percent longer than they would have without energy recovery
3: so what are some of the problems with having landfills that rapidly fill up with trash. I mean what are some of the health hazards, what are some of the community hazards, why don't we want to keep doing what we've been doing, what we were doing for decades?
2: Well nobody wants to be a landfill, a neighbor to a landfill Um, and you know landfills um, can grow in size quite rapidly and we we've seen them in Maine. Um, You probably have seen them from the highway Um, and they often have impacts on on the surrounding communities not so much on the groundwater side but on the odor side on vectors and seagulls and, and, and those types of things and so we really want to limit the size of our landfills. We still need landfills, uh, don't get me wrong. Um, we're gonna need landfills for, for quite a long time, I, I predict. But we have to minimize the amount of waste that go to our landfills um, because it's a, she- it's a sheer volume um, metric uh, because the bigger they are, the harder they are to, ma- uh, to manage and um, eventually we're gonna run out of landfill space if you go to Europe um, you know they don't have landfill space anymore over there and they've done a very good job at managing their waste in other ways um, here in in North America, we still have a lot of land, um, relatively speaking, and you're still seeing most of the waste stream still ending up in landfills. We do a pretty good job in in Maine here, but there's room for improvement, and and so we have to still dig away at the waste stream, what's left in the waste stream, and remove as much as possible and get it recovered.
3: You talked about um, landfills not impacting groundwater. But hasn't that been a problem in the past?
2: Well, online landfills um, certainly had an impact on on the surrounding gr- groundwater, and and that was that was an issue. But newer landfills today um, are built and engineered in such a way that they don't have an impact on on groundwater, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, however, landfilling is a storage of waste strategy. The waste doesn't go away. Some of it does decompose, but not much of it. And so it's it's important um, that we again minimize what uh, the amount. Of waste that's going into these landfills so that we don't have to live with this storage of waste for decades to come. I look at landfills as deferring the true cost of dealing with the waste to future generations. So we generate the waste and if we landfilling it, all we're saying is, my kids will take care of it someday. And their kids will take care of it someday. And so it's, I think that a better solid waste strategy is to deal with that waste today. Process it today. Recover what you can. And then, yes, you're going to have to landfill a little bit at the end of the day.
3: What are your thoughts on composting? I know that there are some cities that are actually doing uh, recovery uh, of food scraps, food wastes, and um, creation of compost that then can be used for soils. That's something that we're not quite doing yet on a larger scale here in Maine.
2: Right, we have some pockets of some uh, good recovery programs of what I would refer to as food waste or yard waste. There's kind of two components of what we classify as organic waste. Of the waste stream right now, 40% of it is organic material that can be either composted or digested in a digester. And you're seeing programs being developed uh, across the country, across uh, across the world for that matter, um, and it's becoming more and more popular um, to recover this organic waste stream. And, um, uh, you know, I think there's tremendous opportunity to reach our recycling goals by adding food waste recycling um, to our programs and um, you know each and every day you're seeing more and more particularly on the commercial side and even on the residential side you mentioned that you you've, you've uh, composted in the backyard and if somebody can manage their own waste in their own backyard hey you're doing um, the environment a huge favor. Um, and, and hopefully you're seeing the rewards of doing backyard composting by by using that compost um, and so we want to encourage that as much as possible but not everybody has a backyard to do their own uh, backyard composting in and and so we want to make sure that there's an infrastructure that is a solution to recovering this portion of the waste stream forty percent of the waste stream right now um, and, and get that remove it from the waste stream and get it recovered to a, 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 to a usable function
3: the reason I started composting was because my parents composted, and I suspect that my father's father also composted, um, but I still get a little flack. I still get a f- little flack from my family. They make a little fun of me because I am so not wanting to put that apple core into the trash, you know. It, it actually has to become something that is important to you because otherwise it's easy enough to just say, "Uh, oh, I'll just, there's the trash. I'll just put it in there. What's your experience with that?
2: Um, you know, I think, you know, uh, life is cyclical and, and years ago, um, you know, they, they re- they've been recycling um, for, for many, many years and um, back in the day, you know, they used to send their, um, their organic waste um, to pig farmers and, and, um, and, and place it back into the earth. Um, if it it wasn't going to feed animals. So, um, yeah, I I can appreciate what you're saying is is that it's kind of coming back uh, once again because I think what happened over the years is we relied too heavily on, on straight landfilling. And it's caught up with us because these landfills are becoming giants and um, when you see them all you have to do is take a quick look I mean we're talking you know within 30 seconds you can see the crisis um, that is happening when it comes to landfilling I call it a crisis because if you don't see it then you don't know its crisis um, but eventually this waste is going to come back um, and we're going to have to deal with it. And um, so uh, food waste is, is an easy way, I, I say easy, relatively easy way, um, to help um, divert material away from landfills. The problem with food waste is it comes with the, what I call the ick factor. So if you have a, a countertop little container for food waste and you put your banana peels in there and your um, cucumbers and, and leftover lettuce and things like that, um, you know, you have to manage it because you don't want fruit flies and you don't want odors. And, and, um, and so it's a little bit harder than just recycling because if you recycle your newspapers, you don't have to worry about fruit flies um, or your laundry detergent containers aren't going to become, uh, you know, they aren't going to have an odor. Um, so, uh, it definitely, it takes more participation when it comes to recycling food scraps than, um, yard waste or recyclables or any other fraction of the waste stream.
3: Is it also important to be careful with, um, what we actually purchase to eat, to wear, to use? Aren't some things, um, if we send them out to be, well, let's just, I I think about, for example, um, prescription drugs. You know, I prescribe medications in my medical practice, and some people have for decades been flushing things down the toilet. Now, that that seems like it's going to cause a problem later on for whatever's on the other end of that toilet flush. And at the same time, putting them into the landfills is also a problem. So being a little mindful of, you know, whatever it is we're buying to actually use and being appropriate with it.
2: Um that yeah we call that using your purchasing power um, to make the right decisions um, at the point of, of purchase. And so, very important. Um, and and actually, you know, manufacturers of products have have reacted to that over time. We call it light weighting of packaging. Um, for example, you know, the the water bottles these days don't use the nearly the amount of material or plastic to make the to make those bottles as they used to. And if you know, sometimes they're even hard. They're so thin now that sometimes they don't even stand upright. Um, you know, when they're half full. So, um, certainly, um, using your purchasing power is important, you know, and when it comes to uh, prescription drugs, you know, we have an answer for that. Um, We have collections um, for those materials and we um, send them through the waste energy facility, so they're destroyed. Um, And and with all the packaging that comes from uh, prescription drugs, because it's usually more packaging than it is the actual drugs themselves. And um, and so we do recover energy from from that waste, and it's and it is destroyed. So um, in in our case, I, th- I think we have a pretty good solution um, for processing that particular material, and um, and that's where you always have to find the right place for every port, for every uh, item in the waste stream.
3: So. One of the, th- the reasons that we had you on the show is one day I was behind, and I told you this story already, so forgive me for repeating myself. But one day I was behind an enormous recycle container that said EcoMain, and there were these lovely paintings on the side, and it just seemed so friendly. It made me want to. I, I think it was like a Starry Night, almost like a Picasso kind of painting. It made me want to participate. It made me want to bring my recycling down and put it in the container. Is there some sort of strategy behind this
2: Um, we're drawing attention to ourselves Um, we um, feel that it's very important um, to uh, to have an outreach campaign that's effective um, because we can't operate in a bunker we need participation from our businesses and residents in our communities and without that um, our programs will won't be successful. Um, not not even a chance. And so we spend a quite quite a bit of money, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars on outreach and awareness, but we feel that that investment has a return for us. Um, and the return is good participation from our communities in the programs that we offer. And so that's one example of, of, of uh, getting the word out and, and making people question, okay, what's happening to that container? What's in that container? Um, is it recyclable materials? Um, we have been doing commercials. We have a full-time educator that all he does is go from school to school And if the schools are willing, almost on a daily basis, we have tours of our facility because we feel if you spend a half hour, 30 minutes, 60 minutes at our facility, um, that you become an advocate for good solid waste uh, practices. And so now you become our outreach uh, coordinator and help spread the word and advocate um, on our behalf. So thank you very much.
3: Well, as I said, I, I love this stuff, and people actually make fun of me because I, I think that all of what you're talking about is so important. You know that, you, that It's the inputs, it's the outputs, it's the placement, it's the mindfulness of the choices that we make. And really, I think it's important. The way that you're talking with me about it is very um, welcoming and appropriate. I don't feel as if EcoMaine is doing finger wagging and saying, people need to do this because they're bad if they don't. I feel like what EcoMaine is saying is, hey, we're all part of this, and we can all make an impact.
2: Yeah, and I think um, the, the EcoMaine as an organization, which is publicly owned by our member communities, um, is unique um, when you look at it in, in North America um, because of its very deliberate, organi- organized way of managing solid waste and recyclable materials.
3: Kevin, how do people find out about the work that Ecomaine is doing or some of this outreach that you are willing to have people participate in?
2: We encourage you to visit our website, Ecomaine.org, and we try to keep it fresh and current uh, with all the latest and greatest information. And if you're not finding what you're looking for, let us know. Um, And we have have staff to make sure that uh, the information is available to our member communities.
3: We've been speaking with Kevin Roach, who is the Chief Executive Officer of EcoMaine. Thanks so much for coming in, and thanks so much for all the great work that you guys are doing over there and that you personally are doing for the state of Maine.
2: Thanks for having me. I very much appreciate
0: it. Join Dr. Lisa in celebrating the sweet start of summer with high fashion. Maine Makers, Fine Craft Food and Brews, June 18, 2016, at the third annual Biddeford Ball Black and Tan Charity Event. Designer Roxy Sugar presents main brands on the runway, including Nuthatch, Chart, Seabags, Bowline, Angel Rocks, L.L. Bean Boots, and more. Proceeds will benefit Mainers Feeding Mainers' Harvest for Hope Farm to Pantry program through Good Shepherd and other local food banks. DJ Baby Blue, New York City's veteran of mashup, will keep you moving all night long with his legendary vinyl sounds. More information and tickets available at
3: www.biddefordball.org. You have been listening to Love Main Radio, show number 247 Treasuring Our Trash. Our guests have included Tyler Frank and Kevin Roche. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit LoveMainRadio.com. Love Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa. And see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful1 on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Me Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Me Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle. I hope that you have enjoyed our Treasuring Our Trash show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life.
0: Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasick. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's a clip from our interview with Lale Cooper-Jepson from next week's program.
4: I literally walked into this leadership retreat uh, that I had done many times before, and for the first time, I just saw this. It was the top 150 leaders of the company, and I just saw this sea of white men in their 50s and 60s primarily, and a few women, but all I could see was the predominantly white men. And at the same time, I looked down, and I was 10 months pregnant. I, was, I probably should not have even been at this retreat, but I loved it. And so I was very sort of ripe with child so much so I couldn't even see my toes from underneath my belly. And it just struck me in that moment, that visual of, I, I'm a woman. And Sounds so simple and basic to say that now, but it clicked for me in that moment. And that, that was the moment that began everything, that changed everything because I started to see myself as different and I started to get curious. The first part of my journey was to get curious of how that happened how, and how was I culpable? How did I um, allow that to happen at the age of 34? Um, how, how did I get to this place? So there was the unraveling of that and there was rage and anger that came up um, behind that and um, processing through that. Um, so it began with curiosity. It moved into anger. Um, it it had me start to look outward into the world and say, where, where are the women? Where am I out there? And what what's happening? I, at that time, I had an advanced degree, and I knew the statistics of the disconnect between women who are, uh, women who are, uh, getting advanced degrees and actually accelerating into the C-suites. And it wasn't really, uh, in the boardrooms, it wasn't really working. So, um, I surprised myself and realized, um, that, um, I wanted to dedicate my work in the world to working with women, which took me by surprise because, uh, I I couldn't ha- I did not see that coming. That was not a dream I had growing up. I didn't identify as being a feminist. I didn't identify as being a woman. So here I am dedicating my my professional life to this, informing she changes, which I went on to do. And it was a journey. I had a, a I worked with a lot of men who I love. Um, and still love, who were like, you're cutting off half your market share by just working with women. You really should think that through. And I did. And I was thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing? But something wise within me has governed all of my work with She Changes, this book. And I've, trust, I've invested in that. I've often joked that that's the key stakeholder in my business, that wise voice in me. And it served me well. So it, um, all of the work, the book that you hold in your hands, is really the culmination of my journey of the past ten years that has taken me to this point. And it uh, began as a conversation about being woman, and then it, as I teased it out further, it began. It became about the range of who I am as a woman and making space for the masculine energy in myself, which I had shamed a lot. And so asking myself why I participated in that shame. And then the feminine energy, what did that even mean? I mean, so it was it was quite an inside-out thrashing around. I call it a street fight on the cover. And an aria, because it was totally inspired. And it's such an honor to have gotten that. I'm so glad it's out. <laughs> yeah.
3: It's interesting that you would talk about feminism because... Looking back through the book in preparation for today, um, I really was struck by yeah. anger and yeah. and the quote that you gave by Gloria Steinem, anger is energizing. The opposite of anger is depression, which is anger turned inward. Yeah. And then you ask the question, why is it that when a woman gets angry, she is shamed? Right. Nothing shuts me up. Than...
0: Thank you for listening to Love, Main Radio. We hope you can join us for next week's program.